All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. It's good to see you. We've been gone for two weeks on hiatus. We had the uh, Young Adults Conference. We had Yak. How many of you went to that? Yeah, I was so blessed. I don't know about you guys, but Joe, Jimmy, John, they all did a fantastic job just teaching us about God's Word. But it's good to see you back because we had Yak, and then we also had prayer night last Wednesday. How many of you guys were there? Okay, good. I found that every, since I've come here, I'm getting a little bit of feedback. There we go. Since I've come here, every single prayer night has actually gotten busier. Uh, there's more and more people there. And I don't know about you, this in part of my sermon, I just get fired up about that. I love seeing God's people pray. And so if you aren't going, you need to be there. It's the first Wednesday night of every month we have prayer night. And I would just encourage you, if you haven't been to one, go. It's a time where we just kind of gather as a church and we all pray together. And I think it's, it's really a place where God shows up. But anyways, um, I am not Pastor JT. I know, this is shocking. And <laughs> we look a little different, but JT and all the interns are on vacation. No, I'm kidding, they're not. They're, they're off suffering for the kingdom in SoCal as they... Uh, are at the Shepherds Conference. And so they're getting their cups um, filled so that they can come back here and instruct us. But while they're gone, they have uh, asked me to preach tonight as we continue in our series, The Rise and Fall of Solomon. And in this series, we've been in the book of 1 Kings, looking at the life of a man who is one of the greatest kings to ever walk the earth. And tonight we're going to continue to follow his life in 1 Kings chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And before we do, I think it's worth recapping where we've been since we've all been gone. I think that might be worth doing. And so in 1 Kings chapter 1, at the very beginning, we saw Solomon ascend to the throne. If you remember, David, his father's dying at this point. He's old. And so there's this whole narrative of how Solomon has to get into the throne. And it's not simple because his older brother, Adonijah, the slimy one, set himself up as king. But in, the, in chapter 1, what we see it's ultimately Solomon who's appointed and anointed as the king of Israel, even though Adonijah set himself up. And so that was chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we saw that Solomon established peace in the kingdom by eliminating his enemies. And this was when David, right before he dies, he gives his son a hit list. He says, when you become king, here's all the people that you need to take out. And so Solomon does this. And peace is brought through bloodshed. Interestingly enough, peace is brought through bloodshed as Solomon further established his reign over the kingdom. And then in chapter 3, Colin preached an excellent sermon on how Solomon received wisdom from God after he asked for it. And it's this famous passage where God comes to Solomon, he's, he's delighting in him, and he says, if you ask for anything, I will give it to you, I will grant it to you. What is it that you want? And Solomon, he, said, he, he comes before the Lord, and in all humility, he says, God, I want the wisdom and the discernment that, it, that a leader requires. Um, God, I want to be able to lead your people well, and I want to glorify you, so would you bless me with wisdom? And God honors him for this. He blesses him for it, and he gives it to him. And then in the last chapter, chapter 4, JT preached on the effects of wisdom, because chapter 3, God gives it, and then in chapter 4, we see its effects. And as God answered Solomon's prayer for wisdom, for true wisdom, the kingdom was blessed with order and stability and security and wealth 
all these things. So much so that at the very end of chapter 4, it says, All the peoples of the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And so Solomon's kingdom is thriving to the point where everybody else wants to see what he's got. They want to see what's so special about him. And it marks him out from all the other nations because God's blessed him. That brings us to chapter 5, where Solomon is going to shift his attention from establishing his reign. That's really what's happening. Solomon is establishing his reign in chapters 1 through 4. And he's going to turn his attention now and gear up for one of the great works of his life which is building the temple. And tonight I want to look at how Solomon does this. How does God prepare him to do it? How is he going to build the temple? And it's important to ask because building the temple will define and shape Solomon's legacy as one of his greatest achievements and as one of the most important events in all of Israel's history. This is a big moment that Solomon's stepping into. Because God is going to come down and dwell on the earth with his people when Solomon builds the temple. And he's going to bring his presence. The same God whose holiness and might is so awesome and terrible that anyone who came near to it was put to death is going to take up a residency with his people. It's awe-inspiring. It's an incredible moment. And in this chapter, what we are going to see is that Solomon is just starting the work. We see that he has to prepare and he has to get ready for this moment. Because just like any great work, it's not going to happen by accident. You're going to see this in the next couple of chapters. Building the temple takes a ton of work. Solomon didn't just wake up one day, get out of bed, and like look out the window and all of a sudden, oh, there's a temple. No. Instead, he's going to have to work for it. For me, just with how I'm wired, I immediately thought of like the Rocky movies or like Creed, or any like boxing movie worth its salt, where the, the hero, before he's ready to have his title fight, he has to go and hit that bag like a million times, you know? He's in the gym, he's working out, he's got the grout fit on, he's running the miles, the music's in the background, he's training, he's getting ready for the moment. So you can kind of think of that, that that's what Solomon's doing here. He's getting ready for the work, and God is the one preparing him to do it. It's key to notice that. And I believe that in looking at this, in, in doing this, Solomon shows us how the people of God are equipped for the work of God. And this is relevant to us because if you're here tonight and you're a believer, then you've been called to work by God. Do you know that? God has not saved you and called you out of your sin so that you can sit on a shelf and look nice. He's called you so that you can work And while most likely none of us have been called like Solomon to go and build just some massive temple, what we have been called to is an even greater work. To greater works than these. And that's the title of my sermon. The Westminster Shorter Catechism aptly describes the work of the believer in its first question. When it says this, The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And so for every one of you guys here tonight, your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Specifically, how this plays out in your life is going to vary from person to person. And yet each of us has a work that God's calling us to. And that he's equipping us for as well. And so whether you realize it or not, 
Each of you is in a stage where you are being prepared for the work that God has set before you. Under your parents' roof, at school, with your friends, here at the church, everywhere you go and everything you do right now is shaping you. And it's going to form the kind of person you will be, the kind of life you're going to live, the job you will have. But more importantly than that, what you do right now is shaping the kind of follower you're going to be and the kind of impact you're going to have for the kingdom of God. And so what you do now in your life matters. It matters. It matters to God and it matters to your future. And so for us, it's important to ask the question of how can I prepare if, if we have this work to glorify God and, and, and to enjoy him forever, and I'm supposed to do that with my life, we have to ask, how do I do that? How do I prepare for the work that God is calling me to? How is he going to equip me? How is it that I accomplish this work? And so to answer that question, we turn to 1 Kings chapter 5. And we're going to begin in verse 1. It says this. Now Hiram... King of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. So we see the two had a relationship. And Solomon sent word to Hiram. And he said, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him. Until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now... The Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor is there misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David my father, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Now therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants. And I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly. And he said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I've heard the message that you have sent to me. I know what it is that you ask. And I am ready to do all that you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place that you direct. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired. While Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom, as he had promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all of Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hill country, besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were all over the work and had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house. 
and, and with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gabal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. When it comes to preparing for the work of God, the first thing we see that Solomon does is he stands upon the promises of God. By chapter 5, Solomon's been in power now for five years, actually four years. And in that time, God's established his rule and blessed him. And so now Solomon is going to call upon God's promises as both his motivation and his justification for building the temple. And we see this in his conversation with King Hiram at the beginning of our passage. Because Solomon makes a request to him. And he asks him for wood and materials, and this request is predicated. That means it's based upon the promise that God had made to his father, David. We see this in verse 5. He says, So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord. I'm going to build the temple. Because the Lord said to David, my father, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. And so it's, it's that promise, that promise that David received from God that is driving and, and being referenced to by Solomon. And in that promise we see is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And you can't understand 1 Kings chapter 5 without knowing the promise of 2 Samuel 7. In that passage, God told David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, so when you die... I am going to raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. We've seen that happen with Solomon. And then he shall build a house for my name. That's what we're starting to see happen here. He's going to build a temple and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We see the third aspect, an eternal kingdom tied to it as well. And so in chapter five, we see the beginnings of this promise come to fruition because Solomon realizes the time has come for the work to begin. He looks around and he sees that, that God has given him um, peace in the land. He's giving, given him the resources necessary. And so now it is time. And God's promises drive Solomon's project. And this is so important to realize because apart from God's promise, Solomon would never have started the work. Did you notice that? If God had never made that promise in 2 Samuel 7 or if Solomon just didn't know about it, then he would have had no reason to build the temple for God. He wouldn't have had a single reason. And this is true for us as well. See the connection. Believers fail to prepare for the work that God has set before them. You will fail to do the work that God has set before you and prepare for it because you don't know and act upon God's promises. It's not enough to just, to just believe in God and have this life where you say, yes, I, I know who Jesus is, I believe in him. You have to know the promises and, and the, the, the commands that come with that. And what's key to this is the idea of knowing and acting upon. Because both are required to, do, to stand on the promise, which is my first point. If we're going to stand on the promise, it's not enough to just to know the promise. You have to act on it as well. And we see this because there are some people in this world who will know God's word. They're going to know the Bible better than you or I ever will. And yet they're going to be condemned for all of eternity 
They will know God's word, but they won't act upon it. They won't put faith in it. They won't believe in it. Knowledge isn't enough. Action is required. And I remember experiencing this, this concept of, because really what this is, is it means that you have to have faith, knowledge, and action, trust. I experienced this idea of faith for the first time when I was, uh, I think, in the second grade. And I've used this illustration, actually, in kids. Because at the time, I was in Sparky's. How many of you are familiar with what Awana is? Yeah, I was in Awana my whole life, and so I grew up in Sparky's, and my dad was the pastor of the church. And so that meant that he would teach the big group lesson. And that Wednesday night, it was time for us to learn about faith. And I remember it was different than most other Wednesday nights because my dad got up to teach and there was a two-story ladder standing right behind him. I was just like, that's odd. There's just a painter's ladder right behind him. And so he gets about halfway through his lesson. He's explaining faith to us. And he says, Alex, will you come up here? And so there's a group probably about the same size as this one tonight. And I, I didn't know he was going to ask me. And so sure enough, I go up and in front of the whole crowd, my dad looked at me. And he said, Alex, do you trust me? I was like, of course, Dad, I trust you. And he said, all right, son, I want you to climb the ladder. I was like, okay, like I'm in second grade. I'm a boy. I'm not afraid of anything. So sure enough, I just up the ladder I go. But about like halfway, I remember looking down and it, it started to get a little high up there. People are starting to look a little, a little smaller and I'm getting to about the two-story mark uh, point of the ladder. And I, I get up there and I remember... I'm kind of like shaking at this point, but I turned around and I'm looking back at the crowd and at the bottom is my dad. And this time he looks up at me and he says, Alex, do you trust me? Yes, dad, I trust you. And he sticks out his arms and he says, son, I need you to jump. But I promise I am going to catch you. And so there I am at the top of the ladder and I, I know in my head, my dad is true to his word. When he says something, he's going to do it. And so if he says he's going to catch me, I know in my head he is going to catch me. I believe that. Not only that, I've told everyone in the crowd that I believe it at this point. But there was one thing I needed to do to show that I actually trusted my dad, right? I needed to jump. And the truth is, there are going to be moments in life for you where your faith requires action. And it might not, it might not, it might cost you. It might not be easy. It might hurt. For some of you, this might be at school or on your sports team or with your friends. When God gives you an opportunity to witness, to share your faith or to stand up for what you believe in. And you think in the back of your head, this might cost me. In those moments, it's so important that we know God's promises and that we stand upon them because they will give you the strength to step in to the work that he's called you to. We have to stand on the promises of God. And so I could spend an entire sermon here just going over the different promises that, the, that God has offered to you if you believe in him and you claim that Jesus is your savior. But I just want to cover a few. If you feel weak and fearful when it comes to sharing your faith with friends and standing up for it, I want you to remember the promise of Isaiah 41.10, where God says that I will strengthen you. Fear not, I will help you. I will uphold you with my hand. Remember that promise and step in by faith to witness, even in the face of your fear. If you're in a season of doubting, 
and you don't know what your place before God looks like, I want you to remember the promise of Romans 8.38. That there is nothing in this world, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come, not even yourself. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that he has shown you in Jesus Christ. Don't be discouraged. Trust that the Lord will keep you and recommit yourself to following him if that's you. If you feel like life's burdens are crushing you, you just have so much going on, you're not enough, you're crippled by it, you're anxious, remember the promise of Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let your burdens rest upon the broad shoulders of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And as our last one, if you are discouraged, if you look at the world around you and you see that it is broken, that things are wrong, that there is pain, that it isn't right, and this weighs on your heart, then I want you to remember the promise of Revelation 21, 3-4, where John tells us that God will dwell with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen to this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things will pass away. If you are struggling, that is a promise to hold on to. That will give you strength. And all these promises, they're just a small taste of the riches of what God has given to us in his word. And so I'd encourage you, get in the book. Read God's word. Meditate on it. Memorize these promises. D.L. Moody once said, God never made a promise that is too good to be true. Always like that. God never made a promise that's too good to be true. If it is in God's word, then it will be done. That's who God is. He is true. His word is faithful. It will come to be. And he has offered you rich promises that you can stand upon them when it's time for you to work. So stand on the promise. That brings me to my next point, which is this. If first we must stand on the promise, then second, we must set our hearts to wisdom. Set your hearts to wisdom. As Solomon's preparing for the work that God has put before him, we see not only that he, he's standing on God's promise, but he really is applying the wisdom that God has given to him. Because we know that in chapter 3, God promised. He said, I will give you wisdom because it's what you've asked for. And what do we see in this chapter? Look at verse 7. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly. And he said, blessed be the Lord this day who has given to David a wise son. And then if we turn our attention to verse 12, it says this, the Lord gave Solomon wisdom. And so what's important for us to understand is that these two verses, first, that Solomon is a wise son, and second, that God is giving him wisdom, they interpret the rest of this chapter. We have to view this entire chapter through the lens of God's wisdom being revealed through Solomon. Because at the first half of this chapter, Solomon is just talking to King Hiram. He's making this treaty with him. They're, they're going over the different details of, you give me the X amount of food and I'll give you the resources. And we see that in this discussion, 
Solomon is revealing his wisdom. And then in the second half, it goes on to the details, the details of the work. I have to draft X amount of workers, and they, I have to have these guys cut out the stones, and these guys lay the foundation. And we see that in that situation, both talking to Hiram and then organizing the work, Solomon is displaying God's wisdom. They're both evidences of God's wisdom in his life, both the way in which he deals with Hiram and the way he organizes the work. They're the fruit of his wisdom. And in this series, we've covered a lot of definitions of wisdom. It's kind of the main thing that follows Solomon in his life. But I found one that stuck out to me, and it said this. Wisdom is knowing the right thing, doing the right thing, and doing it at the right time, in the right way, and to the right extent. And what I liked about this definition is that it points out That wisdom is not only the application of right knowledge. That was the definition we talked about a couple weeks ago. But it's the the right application of right knowledge. Do you see what I'm saying? It's not enough to just know what the right thing to do is. You have to do it in the right way. That's what wisdom is. And this ability to do the right thing in the right way is exactly what Solomon needs when he's going to begin the work when he's going to build the temple, because he knew what the right thing to do was. In this situation, God had promised he would build the temple. So, of course, that's the right thing to do. But he also needed to know, how am I going to do that? How am I going to build the temple of God? Because the scale of this project and the details that would have had to go into it would have been overwhelming. And yet, by applying the wisdom of God, Solomon, as we see in the text, is able to successfully begin the preparations And so the important thing for us to understand is that in the same way, the people of God cannot prepare for the work of God without his wisdom. I'm going to say that again. The people of God cannot prepare for the work of God without his wisdom. Because we need to know what the right thing to do is, but also how to do it. Because so easily believers can stand on the promises of God and yet fail to set their hearts to wisdom when they do his work. We can know what it is we're supposed to do and still manage to do it in the wrong way. To boil it down even further, we can have the right motive, but do it with the wrong method. Do you see how that works? I think a great illustration of this is Anakin Skywalker. (laughs) I love Star Wars, so you just have to bear with me. In episode three, Revenge of the Sith, Anakin receives a vision, and in it, the love of his life, Padme, dies. And so he wakes up from this vision, and he decides to himself, you know, I want to protect my wife. I want to protect this woman. And you think, oh, that's cute. Like, that's great. And and then everyone who's seen the movie is like, no! Because he has the right motive. He wants to protect someone he loves. And yet, that motive leads him down a very dark path. He joins the dark side of the force. He betrays everyone he's ever known. Uh, He wipes out the entire Jedi order, including the kids. And then he even ends up actually killing the woman he was trying to protect. Right motive, wrong method, right? You see how that works? You can have the right desires in your life and yet carry them out in the wrong ways. True wisdom includes both the right motive and the right method. This is what we need in our lives. And what we see in Solomon's preparations to build the temple. And so looking back at the chapter, really what we see is that Solomon pursues his motive, which is to build the temple. 
through the methods of humility and organization. So he sets his heart to wisdom through humility and organization. Beginning with humility, we see this in his conversation with Hiram. Because at the height of his power, that's where Solomon is right now, when Solomon begins to prepare the temple, the first thing that he does is ask for help. Do you notice that? In chapter 4, we saw Solomon's been given pretty much everything. He has all the power, all the land, all the wisdom. And yet when it comes time to do the work, the first thing he does is he humbly asks someone else for help. He asks Hiram, can you help me out with chopping some wood? Look at verse 6. He says this. He says, uh, Therefore, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants. I'll pay for your servants such wages as you set. Why? Because you know that there is no one among us in Israel who knows how to cut the timber like the Sidonians. Apparently, the Sidonians were really good at chopping trees. They had the secret sauce. And Solomon recognized that King Hiram's people were better. And instead of being threatened by this, he asked for help. And as a result, we see he gets the materials, but later on in verse 12, it tells us he also comes away with a treaty and peace is established between these two kingdoms. That's why Hiram calls him wise, because Solomon understood his weakness and when to ask for help. That's wisdom. The opposite, can be said, uh, the opposite of this can also be said to the opposite of this can also be said to be true. Those who don't know how to ask for help are fools. Stubborn pride in your life is going to be the thing that pushes people away when you need their help. This happens often because of insecurity, because people are afraid, and they're stubborn to the point that it cripples them from being able to reach out. And it ends up harming you. And while this is found in both men and women, I think this ailment is particularly common in young men. And so I want to speak to all of you, but listen. So often we hate having to ask others for help or having to open up our, our, our hearts and our feelings because we think it makes us weak. And this isn't some moralistic, oh, you just need to be more emotional with each other message. But what I am saying is that if you look to Scripture, the manliest men are often the ones who are the most emotional and the quickest to ask for help. I think of David and Jonathan. Their entire relationship was characterized by emotion for each other. Like they wept, it says. They were, they were so quick to display it. But even more so, they were quick to ask each other for help. True wisdom is being able to recognize your need and to let others know. Maybe you're in a place where you need help, where you're lost, where you're confused. But you're too prideful to let the people around you know. Or maybe you're afraid that if you, you open up, they'll, they'll just abuse the trust that you've shown them. And I would encourage you, don't isolate. Reach out to others. God's put people in your life for a reason. Set your heart to wisdom by pursuing humility and being able to ask for help. Turning to organization... So if at first he sets his heart to wisdom through humility and organization, we see that Solomon pursues work, which is building the temple by effectively organizing his people and his resources. And so as I was reading this, I was trying to really 
dig in and dig to the deeper layer as we just read about detail after detail. But again, the, the scale of the project to build the temple would have been massive. And in this text, what we see is that Solomon alone had to oversee 200,000 men. Upwards of 200,000 men is what it takes to build the temple. And that's not even including the other laborers. Such large numbers of workers would have been impossible for one person to manage. And so Solomon sets his, his overseers upon them, his 3,300 officers. And what these details reveal to us, the reason I bring this up, is because they show intentionality on the part of Solomon. He's intentional with the work that God set before him. And he's, he's pushing for a standard of excellence. Because when the time came for work, he didn't push it off. He didn't get stressed out by what the Lord was calling him to. Instead, he, he assessed the situation and took the appropriate actions. And he did what was necessary, delegating leadership and authority to others, working trade deals with foreign kings, and instituting a draft that was both fair and effective to get the work done. Part of applying wisdom is doing what needs to be done even when it isn't fun. Oh. I wrote that out and then I realized it rhymed. Dale Ralph Davis, he highlights this in his commentary, talking about wisdom. He said, wisdom is seldom flashy, and so it's easily belittled. Sometimes when it comes to getting ready, you just need to put the time in. You need to to put in some spiritual sweat. You need to work. We, We live in this age where it's so consumeristic, where it's immediate gratification, but the, the path of the believer is to work for God. And sometimes that means having to sweat a little bit. And that's a good thing. Don't run from it. In 1 Corinthians 14, 40, Paul tells us, all things should be done decently and in order. And I think this is important because believers, we're called to do things decently and in order. And this requires organization. And now what I'm not saying is that all of you need to just kind of analyze your life and say, well, you know, my room's kind of messy and that's really not my bent. Maybe it is time for me to start just being a type A personality. I'm going to get all my ducks in a row. I'm going to become slightly OCD. That's not what you need to do. If you're like that, praise God, that's the camp I fall in. Um, But that's not what I'm asking. But what I am saying is this. Solomon's life and Paul's words, the ones I brought up in 1 Corinthians, they show us that to some degree... In some way, your life should resemble order because you serve a God of order and doing so displays his excellence. There should be order in your life because it points to intentionality in your heart and it reveals that wisdom is working in you. As a believer, set your heart to wisdom by letting order characterize your life. Humility and organization are both evidences and fruits of having the right method for believers. I think that's important. They're fruits. And so they should be found in your life, not as a means of legalistically proving your faith or earning it in the favor of God, but instead as a response to the transformational work that God is doing in your heart. As you prepare for the work that God's setting before you, as you prepare for it, ask God for wisdom. This is what... Colin preached on. I don't want to recover that ground, but the way you gain wisdom is by asking for it. It comes only from God. And so actively engage in the process of seeking it in prayer, but then look for opportunities to apply it. This will strengthen you as you grow in your walk with the Lord and equip you for what lies ahead. 
So set your heart to wisdom. I think that's important to recognize that you have to seek it and ask for it and God has to give it. But then there is a responsibility upon you as a believer to apply this to your life. I think sometimes in the Christian circles, we can get into this dangerous ground where we talk about the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of God. And it's like you run into a situation where you need wisdom in your life. And all of a sudden you just black out because you ask for wisdom and the Holy Spirit takes over and he, he takes care of business. He says every right word. He does it all for you. And then once it's done, whew, you come back. That's not how it works. You ask for wisdom and you, you pray that God gives it to you, but then you are responsible to apply it to your life. That means you need to know what wisdom is. The right method, the right motive, and the right method. And you're going to find that in God's word, but seek it first in prayer. But don't forget, you are responsible to apply the wisdom of God to your life. So set your heart to wisdom. Okay, that brings me to my last point which is this, seek the coming kingdom. So first we see that we're to stand on the promise to set our hearts to wisdom. And finally, we seek the coming kingdom of God. In chapter five, we see Solomon's preparations for the great work of his life. And he's gonna do that to stand on, he's, he's gonna build the temple by standing on the promises of God and by setting his heart to wisdom. And so that's kind of the main text and that's what we see. But what I don't want you to miss is this. In Solomon's work and in his preparations, there is an anticipation to God's rule in his kingdom. It is pointing to the coming kingdom of God, this chapter. Because linked to the temple, which was going to be the manifest presence of God on earth, was the promise that God would bring his kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And we see this again in 2 Samuel 7, where David was told not only would he have a son who would come and build the temple, but that he would have a son who would come and his throne would be established forever. And Solomon, you can, he understood this promise, and you can, I can guarantee you he would have hoped to be the fulfillment of both those promises, to be the one who built the temple and to be the one who had his throne established forever. But the truth is, he wasn't. God did use him to build the temple, but he was a, a, a sinful man. And we see this in the second half of his life and he fell. That's why it's called the rise and fall of Solomon. And so Solomon's life and his reign as king and even in him building the temple should point us to the need for a greater king. The one who would reign perfectly. The one who would usher in the kingdom of God. And we know that's Jesus Christ. And so not only does Solomon himself as a false, uh, not a false king, but a a faulty king, not only does he point us to the coming kingdom, but the building of the temple itself does. And this is so interesting. And it does this in two ways. Because first we see this. Heathen kings, as Solomon's building the temple, heathen kings are praising God. We see that in verse 7. Hiram hears the words of Solomon, and he rejoices greatly and praises God. And he's a heathen. He doesn't believe in the Lord. And so what I'm saying is that we see a subtle anticipation. It's a foreshadowing of the day that Isaiah prophesied in, chap- in his book, 45, chapter 45, 23, when he said, where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance to the Lord. And so Isaiah prophesied that this day would come where one day every knee will bow and every king and every person would swear allegiance to the Lord. And we see kind of just a subtle hint of that in Hiram as he praises God. And then even more clearly, at the end of chapter 5, we see an a even brighter picture of the coming kingdom of God. 
At the very end, it says in verse 18, So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gabal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. You may read that and say, Alex, how does that point to the kingdom of God? Did you notice that it's Solomon's builders who would be Jews and then Hiram's builders who would be Gentiles and then the men of Gabal who would also be Gentiles? What we have here is both Jews and Gentiles working together to lay the foundation of the temple of God. And it's this interesting kind of foreshadowing of a day in which there would be a better kingdom that would include both Jews and Gentiles, not just the Israeli people of uh, the Israelites, but also the entire earth. And that this would be brought about through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we see that for the believer, we are all called to seek the coming kingdom. We should, just as this passage points us to an anticipation of Christ's kingdom, our lives should point other people other peoples to an anticipation of the coming kingdom because it's the already not yet kingdom of God. It's the already not yet kingdom of God. Jesus brought the kingdom when he came and and lived and died on the cross and was raised again for our sins. But we still get to experience the pain of sin and death in this life. There's harm. There's all these things. And so that points us to a day in which Christ will come back. Again, calling on that promise in Revelations that God is going to come back and make all things right. And so we have to remember that and seek the coming kingdom in our work. Like Solomon, each of us is in a stage of preparation. The decisions you're making, the conversations you're having, the situations you're walking through, all these things are shaping you and preparing you for the work that God is going to place in your life. So what you do now matters. It's going to have an impact. And so I would implore you as a believer to prepare, prepare for the work that God is going to set before you, but also participate in in it now. You're not in a season of life where it's just get ready, get ready, get ready so God can use you in the future. God wants to use you now too. And so you can both prepare and participate in the work of God by standing on his promises, by setting your heart to wisdom, by seeking his kingdom. These will prepare you to glorify God and to point others to faith in the Son of Jesus. That is the joy and purpose of the believer, to point others to the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ through your words, through your deeds, and through your life. And as you do this, you will experience more and more of the joy of a relationship with the God who loves you and was willing to die on the cross for you. As you serve more, there will be greater joy. It's an amazing, amazing, wonderful truth. And so maybe you're here tonight and you don't have a relationship with God. I don't know all of you. I don't know where your hearts are at. You might know, not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And there might be no evidence in your life that you've even begun to live for the glory of God. If that's you, then the free gift of grace is offered to you tonight. Romans 10.9 tells us the promise is given That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That is true for all of us here tonight. It doesn't matter how horrible you think you are. It doesn't matter how undesirable or unworthy you feel. The Son of God died so that he might have you. That's good news. And so believe in the Lord and you will be saved.
and you will enjoy the blessings of his presence forever. For those of you who do know Christ, I would encourage you, do you have a fire in your heart to serve the Lord? Do you want to work for Christ? Can you imagine what this youth group, what this student group would look like if every single one of us had that desire in our hearts that we were just on fire for the Lord? We wanted to do his work. We wanted to see his kingdom come. We wanted to stand on the promises. I think God would use that. And so I would just encourage you, wrestle with it. Stand on God's promises. Look to his word and pray, Lord, give me a heart that wants to serve you and help me to seek the opportunities where I can. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this night. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to open your word and look at 1 Kings chapter 5 and see that, Lord, just as you've called Solomon to the great work of building the temple, you've also called us, your children, to the work of glorifying you and pointing other people to Jesus through our lives. And God, we recognize that this isn't some works-based salvation where we can somehow earn your favor by doing the right things. Not at all, Lord. Instead, it's a response. God, we work. We serve you as a response to the grace that we've already been shown. And Lord, I pray that we would recognize that we can only do this through the strength that you give us. Lord, it's only through your power It's only through your power that the work will be done. Praise be to God that your power, the power of Christ, is made perfect in weakness. God, I pray over these students as you carry them into their weeks, Lord, that you would go before them, that you would give them boldness and their testimony and their witness, and that they would view whatever they have going on in their lives as an opportunity to glorify you, that they would intentionally step into those moments, God, that they might serve you. And so, God, be with us, be glorified, and teach us to love you more. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right. You guys are dismissed. My group, let's go. That's weird. We just preached. Dude. My man. My man. You got a shorter one for the next group?